0: Podcasting is unshackling audio storytelling from the traditions and tropes of of radio.
1: You want to have a little tiny story and a really big idea.
2: I think there is an immense power in using the personal, but using it quite sparingly.
0: I actually think radio is an infinitely more visual medium.
1: You have to sell a podcast, I think, much more than a radio story
0: the power of being a, a, a vulture or a magpie for ideas, isn't it? You put them in your back pocket for later, yeah. For when <laughs> you need that really beautiful metaphor to play with.
1: I'm an idea maggot. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm
2: Louisa Lim. I'm the host of The Masterclass. And today we're bringing you a special recording of a live Masterclass event. It's a Masterclass in how podcasting is changing the audio space. Natasha Mitchell is the award-winning host of Science Friction on ABC Radio National. She's been podcasting since the earliest wave, in 2005, when All in the Mind was first podcast. Our second guest is Robert Smith, also an award-winning radio journalist. He's the host of NPR's Planet Money, which tries to make the economy interesting. To this end, he's drilled for oil launched a satellite into space, and harvested cotton for a Planet Money t-shirt. We began our conversation when I asked Robert Smith what was the craziest thing he'd ever done for
1: a story. Um, What is the weirdest thing I've ever done in the service of journalism? Um, I I went out after uh, there was a big oil spill uh, outside of Louisiana, and they outlawed all fishing. But I heard that there were some good old boys down there who would get out on their boats and go fishing anyway, because like, Sure, why wouldn't you? Uh, other than the big oil slick on the water. So I went out with them as they went fishing. And uh, they were pulling shrimp out of the water and just popping them in their mouth. And, and I was like, oh, this is the, this is, this is the worst. And, and I, I did this story. Um, and at one point during the story, you can hear me reeling in a fish because why wouldn't you try this? And then afterwards, um, I got in trouble because technically I was violating you know federal law at that point. Uh, which they don't want you to do on the radio.
0: Did you eat the shrimp?
1: Uh, I did. It was good?
0: It was good? fine. It was
1: fine. I mean, I, I feel <laughs> fine, right? <laughs> you yeah.
0: live to tell another tale.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, good radio is about having adventures, isn't it? So it's – but you can have adventures just with ideas too, I think. You know, it's amazing where you can take your listener uh, if you're lateral enough. But I suppose in terms of practical adventures, I've done things over the years like um, – I don't know, I've recorded brain surgery and uh, another early project as a cadet. I I remember doing a piece to camera in front of a rotting pig, absolutely (laughs) seething with maggots. And that was for TV. But I actually think that radio is an infinitely more visual medium. And yeah, the maggots look pretty gross on TV, but imagine finding the words and hearing Can my you hear rhythm? Them? Do they oh. sound like something? <laughs> oh,
1: terrible. Oh. Oh. <laughs>
0: oh. And just hearing my reaction, wouldn't that be make for better radio than TV? <laughs> so how do you do that,
2: the journey, especially when it's not a physical journey, it's a mental journey that you're taking people on sort of in the service of an idea? How do you even sort of start doing that?
0: Oh, where do you start? Um with an idea that you want to ferret out, with great talent, with great recording opportunities in the world, with great music. Where do I start? Well, I first find people that I, I think can put me in a circumstance or an environment or in a conversation that allows me to explore that idea. That's where I would start
2: you're doing a very similar thing in that you're taking very complicated ideas and really breaking them down in very, very simple ways so that everybody can understand them. Natasha, yours often with science, and Robert, yours with economics. So, for example, explaining economic cartels by talking about the history of fondue, Swiss cheese, I just thought was brilliant. But how does that planet money model work? How do you find those ideas and deliver?
1: When you're doing a story, I believe, especially... In economics. You want to have a little tiny story and a really big idea. And so my technique is I just absorb a lot of ideas. I read a lot of things that are not actual stories, but are about, you know, tariffs and trade and and currency issues and central banks and uh, the Phillips curve. And I just, I read those and then I store them away in the back of my head and don't think of them again until I see something small and then it just clicks. I'm just like, ah, like this is exactly what I was looking for, not even knowing I was looking for it. So in the case of cartels, I've always been interested. A cartel is when a, a group of companies or countries get together to fix the price of something. And, and it's, it's a, always a fascinating thing to me because it is both uh, a symptom of greed. You do it because you're greedy and want more money. But because you're greedy, you have a tendency to stab your partners in the back. So cartels always have this failure that happens during the process of carteling. You know, you're trying to always keep them in line. And this is the idea that was in the back of my head. And I was in Switzerland, and I was eating fondue, and I was looking up, oh, who invented fondue? And I found out that there was a Swiss cheese cartel that controlled all the cheese in the country, and they had surplus cheese, and so they had to sort of send fondue to the world to get us to eat more cheese
0: and I love the way in that story you actually it's it was the act of searching for the story well the the act of that search process and that discovery became part of your your narrative you yeah know?
1: I mean and you do the same thing which is look ideally you find a story in the world that's happening and it's happening in front of you and all you have to do is just record it and it's pristine and it's perfect But if you're covering complicated issues or you don't have a lot of time, oftentimes the movement is created by yourself. You have to move through the scene and the story and search and discover things for yourself. It's not the ideal thing, but it happens when you don't have a lot of time and you just have to get through a bunch of different people and a bunch of different ideas quickly. It's the power of
0: being a, a, a vulture or a magpie for ideas, isn't it? You put them in your back pocket for later yeah. for when you need that really beautiful metaphor to play with.
1: I'm an idea maggot. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> this will be the, with, with the sound thing. <laughs> So when
2: it comes to envisaging an idea and how to do it for radio, how to do it, a podcast. Is it different or is it the same?
1: It's been very interesting. I was a radio reporter for a long time and we turn a lot of our podcasts into shorter radio stories. And there's just, there's sort of a different set of things you need to do a story at 20 minutes or 25 minutes like we do, or for three minutes on the radio. So there's a different scope and scale of the story. More things have to happen during the story and surprises have to be there if you're doing a podcast whereas on the radio a lot of times you're spoiling the ending at the very beginning because you know the ending is news and you know your your news directors want the news to be at the very beginning so so a lot of times if we're taking a radio story and turning it to a podcast where we're disentangling it. We're straightening out the story. We're putting the surprises back in, making it more uh, narrative and chronological. Yeah.
2: And I do feel there's a difference because NPR tends to run very short news pieces whilst at Radio National, yeah.
0: you can go a lot more long forms. I've sort of always been working in... Uh, different types of radio lend themselves for being translated to podcasts and different types of podcasts lend themselves to it landing back on the airwaves, I think. And I've been fortunate enough to work in a fairly niche way so for years i hosted a show called all in the mind which is about the mind and brain and behavior and philosophy and and that's a delicious sort of area f- that translates beautifully to a podcast so single theme per show kind of unpacking an interesting narrative or an interesting idea um, that works really well for a podcast. So it sort of landed really easily. Whereas things like Life Form Radio, Magazine, I presented Life Matters, that didn't really translate so well into podcast land so much. I mean, single interviews do, but why would people tune in? It, I'm not, there's no reveal, there's no kind of quest, there's no classic sort of storytelling tropes in an interview necessarily. There are, but that's another conversation. So I think they are different, but they're both audio. They are both intimate and podcasts exacerbate that, I think, and strengthen that relationship you have with that one listener. It's both about intimate storytelling with one listener. I mean, hopefully millions of listeners, but ultimately you think about your story construction as one listener, you and them or you and your guests and them.
2: Well, that's one thing I was going to ask because that whole relationship, I think, between the host and the listener, the presenter and the listener is more important in a podcast I think people are more invested because they've chosen to listen to you and so there's almost like more of an onus on you to reveal more of yourself not to do that sort of stand back radio thing Howie was
0: that something that you've struggled with I'm not sure that podcasters always think about their listener that broadcast mentality you really did often think about your listener i did oh, anyway that's i thought really into because i suppose because i've worked with really intimate content for a very long time so i've i really paid a lot of attention to that relationship in my own mind as a as i'm writing scripts and things sometimes i think in the podcast land yes it's more intimate yes i think it should intensify that relationship with your listener but often the formats have been two hosts having a a great playful chat or unfolding an interesting narrative as a double-headed act and I often think well where is your listener in this relationship are you involving them enough in your narrative don't know
1: what do you think oh see I have the opposite (laughs) I have the opposite experience which is that on radio because you're part of a stream you know that someone is going to continue listening and you try to make it so they don't turn off the radio. But you know, when I did a radio report, I'm with reporters around the globe. Uh, there's hosts and there's interviews. I'm just part of this mix. And obviously, I wanted it to be good, but I knew that people are going to keep listening no matter what. But I, I, I really feel with podcasting because it is a choice and because you're competing at any one moment. Anyone looks at their phone and you're competing with the best people in the world. You know, it's not just oh, what's on the other radio station dial, of which in the United States uh, there's not a lot of good stuff out there. But when they're looking at their phone, they're like, oh, should I listen to Planet Money or should I listen to, uh, you know, this American Life, and should I listen to Serial? Should you know? So you have to sell a podcast, I think, much more than a radio story. And so we spend a lot more time thinking um, about the listener and will they be. Will they be engaged from the very beginning? Are we doing Mm. anything to turn them off in the first two minutes? How do we keep them going to the end? And we look at a lot of uh, data and stats on on how people continue to listen, whether they make it to the end, and that's really important to us.
2: And, I mean, how much do you think that choice is driven by the fact that they want to listen to you? How much is it about the presenter and about revealing yourself? Because I think we have had this move into the more intimate, you know. And if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you hear, I don't know, Gimlet's Alex Bloomberg taking his recorder into his shrink's office, putting it between himself and his shrink. Millennials Megan Tan, you know, -hmm. has her, you know, recording device in bed with her and her boyfriend. So is there a line that you wouldn't cross? See,
1: I don't don't think that that's as intimate as it sounds. Mm. I mean, I think they're playing characters. And I... I reveal stuff when in the podcast, but it's not, it's not true stuff. It's, 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 I am a character searching for a story and doing a theme and it's not, it's not a fake character, but it's also not real. So if I'm telling you a story about this trade dispute over cigarettes, one of our more recent stories, Mm -hmm. and I, and I, and I throw a little thing in there about, uh, in high school and, uh, clove cigarettes and this sort of thing. Now I'm not telling that to you because it was important to me or this is a deep part of my soul. It's just I'm trying to get you engaged in the story. So if, if that makes sense to me, I, I don't feel that I've ever revealed anything, even though I have done embarrassing things on tape. I've you know recorded myself snoring. I have um, <laughs> obviously gotten in trouble and uh, made mistakes and offended people. Like those are human qualities, but they're not. They're not me. I don't know. I.
2: But isn't isn't authenticity the kind of currency of podcasting?
1: I think the authenticity is about my authentic interest in the story. I mean, I'm asking real questions that I'm I'm really interested in. And when I get excited about something, I'm I'm excited about it and I'm excited to be in the story and all of this sort of stuff. But I think that's different. I think authenticity is different than here I want you to know things about my life or um, you know, meet my children or what's my relationship like, you know? Uh, and, and, and it's funny because new podcasters sometimes don't see the difference between those two things. And so the podcast has a lot of like, Oh, here's what I ate for dinner. And here's how I got here. And, uh, I was having a fight with a friend. And if that's not in the service of the story, I always feel like, Oh, they're trying to be podcast personalities but they're not using it for a reason. I mean, I'll use anything if if I need to use it to get someone to understand economics, but I'm not, I'm not doing it because I want to share myself.
0: Yeah, I think I agree. I'm not... It's, it is an interesting moment. I think the NPR writing tradition was always much more... You, the reporter inserted themselves in the story more. You did it so beautifully. You maintained over, you know, over the years that I've listened to All Things Considered and the like... You know, the journalists, the style there, the in-house style is much more personal and the journalist is more embedded in the narrative than we've ever done, I think. And so the podcasting push to be all-out confessional has been an interesting transition for uh, Australian audio makers, I think, because there's also a lot of pressure to be confessional in your audio work. And I don't think you should assume that you need to be. You need to be personal and personable, but I much prefer hearing other people's stories myself. And if I just if I can put a little clever twist or a little, just engage in some way with my own personal connection to the story, I will. But I'm not massively confessional, and I don't force myself to be. I did have my mother on a podcast last year, and that was a first. Um, but then we came to a screaming halt at a key point in the story, and all my <laughs> colleagues went why didn't you get, why didn't you go further? (laughs) Tell us all about your family trauma. And I went, no, (laughs) I'm not going there. But it was a story on epigenetics and looking at the way in which trauma shapes biology. And it's really contested science, but it's fascinating science. And I came to that story because I've always had an interest in that relationship based on my personal experience of these three generations of my family post-World War II. So, had to put myself in it a little bit I think to be genuine in my offering.
2: But I'm interested about the fact that you talk about the kind of Australian radio style as being different from NPR style. I mean what is the sound,
0: the style
2: of Mm. Australian
0: audio today? Well I think it's changing and that's a great thing. The theme of today is how podcasting is changing the audio landscape and I think podcasting is unshackling audio storytelling from the traditions and tropes of of radio. I love radio. I love Radio National, the network I work for, but it has had a very, you know, a particular in-house style. Um, you know, I've evolved as a broadcaster in that environment, but what a beautiful thing that we can kind of let go of some of the traditional sounds and the, the compulsion to give an eye dent and to you know, use a particular theme at the top of the show and, you know, all that sort of stuff that, you know, you're listening to, blah, blah, blah. If you say that in a podcast, it sounds all a bit weird because they are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, and and we, um, on the podcast, we use first names just because that's the way people refer to each other. And it's funny that when we move it to the radio, uh, there's someone always giving us a hard time about it or they're like, oh, you have to change all your first names to last names. And everyone's, you know, just because that's the style there.
0: More informal.
1: Yeah. It's uh, good,
0: isn't it? It's yeah, no, I mean, I
1: think it is. And I mean, breaking all of the rules is one of the things you can do. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But um, But yes, on the radio, there is this sense of, both trying to sort of maintain this level of respect for the organization, you sort of feel that sometimes that you are always a representative of this force that is bigger than you. And um, there's also weirdly enough in radio, I find that you don't trust yourself as much. And so in a radio story, there's a constant appeal to authority. There's there's far more experts. Well, you know, here's an expert. Saying this thing, um, here's an example of 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 someone in the story, and here's three more examples because you may not believe me, you know, and you may not believe this person. And so sometimes when we're turning radio into podcasts, we have to sort of uh, uh, cut down some of the weeds in there and say, you know what, it's fine. You don't need an expert. You can just say it. People trust you. You're, you know, you are the person they're tuning into. So if if the if our fellow hosts at Planet Money want to just tell you. The way an economic concept works, we don't need to haul in a professor to say those words for us anymore. Whereas on the radio, it would kind of be like, "Well, what do you? Who, who are you? Why do you? How, how do you know this thing?" Um, so that's that's been freeing too. Mm.
2: But I mean, that's one of the things that I think both NPR and the ABC face is you have these public broadcasters that are suddenly putting out all these podcasts, and particularly with NPR, you've got super popular ones like Invisibilia. Your one, of course, Planet Money,
1: embedded, embedded uh, was Ted Radio Hour, yeah,
2: and the ch- children's podcast, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all kinds of podcasts. And I mean, are they changing the way that NPR does radio, or how do you uh, reconcile, you know, being a public broadcaster with doing these podcasts that are not necessarily running? And uh, there was an interesting debate
0: a couple of years ago where you were all told you couldn't, all the affiliate stations, because it's a different model weren't allowed to mention podcasts right, because it right. was stripping audience away from the terrestrial stations.
1: Yes, and the stations felt that if we didn't mention the word podcasting no one would ever discover <laughs> it and and they would happily be able to run radio stations forever. Uh, yes, Classic. as an economics reporter this hurt this hurt my heart. Um, it's it's very it's very interesting because the the radio listening has maintained uh, it's been steady and growing a little bit, even though podcasting is out there. But I, I personally think that NPR has maybe made the exact wrong decision in terms of its radio presence, which is because podcasting is out there and they know it's it's a competition, our daily news broadcast is getting more live. The pieces are getting shorter uh, they're doing more interviews with reporters rather than having reporters do pieces and I think the thinking there is, well, if everyone's listening to if everyone wants great radio they 're going to listen to podcasts. So what do we have to offer as a network? Oh, shorter, faster now, you know in the moment live live, live and um and so sometimes the shows seem a little frantic and 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 short i I was hoping that the lesson they take from podcasting is people will listen. For 25 minutes or an hour, you know, to a good, compelling story if told correctly. So I was hoping the lesson would be even longer pieces on the radio, just taking the skills that we've learned in podcasting, how to how to turn a news item into a narrative, how to have uh, an engaging top that keeps people listening, taking those lessons and putting them on the radio. But it's, it hasn't really happened. I mean, radio people are trying to escape to podcasting just to have more time and able to tell their story
0: and how has the ABC dealt with this yeah it's a, I, I suppose I'm a strange fish because I've always thought about I've been thinking about podcasting since 2005-6 so I personally I I'm hearing my own style change fairly dramatically at the moment with some success and some total not success because you've got to keep evolving and I think that what podcasting's done is it's it's brought a different kind of aesthetic to audio storytelling partly because a lot of the big cult podcasts of this era, this wave, have come out of the States and there's a particular approach and a particular narrative style and much more sort of intercutting between reporter as narrator and talent. And it used to drive me nuts, reporter starting a question, uh, starting a sentence and then letting the talent finish it. Oh, I hate that. I used to hate it. What am I doing? doing it I'm actually doing it now because I feel I've just got to try these things out and see what works and what sounds natural and some of it sounds really bad and I know that it's sounding quite twee as I sort of wrestle with this different voice because I've also just come off doing well not just but a couple of years ago four years live daily presenting which is about as trad as you can get in radio which was very interesting experience it kind of deleted everything that I'd taught myself over the 10 years before which was much more podcast orientated but I've got this sort of magazine style live daily hosting brain now and I've got to kind of unpick all that and reinvent the narrative style and that's a great thing I think that podcasting has brought a different kind of fashion style emphasis there's a different trend
2: we could talk forever but I do want to open it up to the room I'm sure people have got tons of
0: questions Joe Chandler from from the Centre of Advancing Journalism. I'm just wondering a little bit, perhaps provocatively, but listening to you talk about how podcasting has liberated you from some of the sort of constraints of journalism, and I'm sort of thinking about how useful some of those constraints are and integral that they are to journalism, is podcasting killing the radio journalism and is it part of the drift into more opinion-led or sort of personality-led storytelling which is so beguiling to us as listeners but it ain't journalism and I'm wondering whether this is leading us down this lovely, you know, sort of slippery slope of of great content and I often learn things but I'm not learning necessarily the news narrative that I need to learn and I'm not getting it from the voices and authorities who I might want to hear it from um, in the first instance
1: well that that is a provocative question. There is obviously great journalism happening in podcasting, and some of the best investigative journalism is happening now in podcasting in ways that are both able to go into depth and to be magnetic but i do I do worry a little bit about the old fashioned sending a reporter to a place to see it themselves and then to report back what they saw, what Louisa did for her entire career, what I did for for part of my career. Because with podcasting, the economic model is such that uh, people are often stuck in the studios. Um, They tell a lot of historical stories. They go back to interviewing. They talk to people in terms of books. Uh, It's very expensive to send a reporter to a place. And so I, I sometimes worry when I look out at podcasts, and there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. But in terms of podcasts where somebody leaves the studio and goes to talk to someone who is not like them, um, there are very few that do that on a regular basis. So I I do worry about that because it's not, um, you know, if you go from one giant news organization that has the money to send people to oh well now we have a thousand we used podcasts used to have the money to used send to have it. the money now we have a thousand <laughs> podcasts and each each one is a two hosts and a producer and there's no time to 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 do the journalism I I worry you know as I look at my career you know am, are there still going to be people who are willing to send me to watch a rocket launch or to you know eat fondue in Switzerland I don't know.
2: But I, I also think there are places that do it really well. Like, for example, the Daily on the New York Times, they do a more personal approach to news, but you still get the news. That, well, they have
1: 100 reporters, you know, <laughs> from the New <laughs> York true. Times out doing that every day. That's so, true. Yeah.
2: I mean, they have, they have the, finance, yeah. the economic yeah. background to do it, but I think they, they do deliver the content. So, it, I, you know, I don't think it's either or. You can do both and.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's something about the style too. I I am less into having journo's talk to each other on podcasts and co-narrate a story. It actually drives me a bit nuts. Mm-hmm. It's a, it can be a bit. No offense, Robert. But it can be a bit twee sometimes. I, I, I don't we don't do even it's... know what that
1: word means in the United States.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Kitsch? I don't know. <laughs> Possibly because I'm not good, as good at it. As, I mean, you're very good at doing that, at co-narrating, co-hosting um, investigative journalism pieces. You do it so beautifully on Planet Money. But when it's not done well, it's two journos indulging themselves and co-narrating a story and forgetting about the world of talent and expertise other than their own voice. That's where journalism gets lost, down the vortex of... Hey, let's jolly up and make a podcast you know and everyone's got to kind of you know there's also a slightly patronizing tone to some podcasts I think we can admit that you've got to kind of gee everyone up and hey, it's a podcast and we're cool you know whereas sometimes there's just a great story to be told or to be reported on. do you nope. want to stand up for the double-headed podcast yeah.
1: <laughs> well you know it's it's he funny it I mean well. we no no we get people we get people who write in and say um oh, you're, you're dumbing down economics, uh, you're, you're laughing too much, all of this sort of stuff. And there are podcasts out there for those people who are just like, this is two hours of hardcore <laughs> interviews with economists, and they're great. I listen to them so I can steal their ideas and then do it for a more general interest podcast. Um, we, you know, it's, it's funny because there are times where we encounter a story that's so good that we are able to remove ourselves and put the story out front. And ideally, that would happen just all the time. Like, that's, that is the pinnacle of achievement. But, you know, you got to do, do a lot of podcasts, and you often don't get the right people. And... Um, or they're too dull, or the the thing you're trying to explain is too complicated. And in those cases, like having two people in a room who care about it and are able to make jokes about it and to laugh and to explain it to to each other, Um, if you can do it in a sincere way, like
3: we're doing a service for you.
2: Any more questions?
3: Hi, thanks for a really interesting chat. Um, I'm a master's student finishing off with Louisa and Joe. Um, I'm just interested in, what the evolution for Australian, I guess, more investigative journalism podcasts are. You've got the huge studios in the States, um, like WBZ and PRX and um, the New York Times. I thought that was a really interesting um, comment, Louisa, because that is a great podcast. But I just don't feel like we've got the resources or the the, um, the financial backing to produce those kind of things. Like, I remember seeing an interview with Ira Glass and... Uh, he made a comment that they have about 45 hours of interviews for one episode of This American Life and you just like shut your laptop and think, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I'd like to get your opinion on what what the other options are. If you don't have, I don't think there's anyone anywhere in Australia, I guess the ABC do background briefings and that's great. But in terms of expanding and those kind of podcasts in Australia, what what's the future for that?
0: Yeah, and I'd be interested to hear the future of investigative journalism in the States as well. I think it's a very, very tough situation right now because investigative journalism takes a lot of money and time and you need more than a week, which is what I've got at the moment. You need more than six weeks, which is what background briefing gets for a story. Now, the ABC is taking a slightly different approach now and background briefings moved into the news division. And so hopefully through collaborations, Um, they'll be able to really consolidate their efforts across multiple platforms. And that will have an impact on radio journalism as well. And it's already happening with the new Unravel project that's just launched yesterday, in fact. So it's a new podcast and it's a TV series as well and it's true crime. But I think that's going to demonstrate a really powerful way of working. But it's only one outlet, isn't it?
1: You know what? Uh, We're jealous of This American Life. Also, oh, yeah. forty-five yeah. hours of tape—it um,
0: me. <laughs> we can't. That's not all. That's that not all. Amer- oh,
1: like, oh, all Americans—we got—we got hours of tape. Um, it's the, the the money for for investigative journalism. It's it's a problem in the United States also. And, um, you know, yes, there's some there's some people who are doing it through foundation money, uh, but that can always dry up. Uh, there's a very limited number of advertisers still in podcasting after all of this time. Um, and it can be pretty lucrative, but you know, for it's but not sort of six months of investigation, lucrative. We just have to find a way to f- to format everything in uh, true crime. I 'm mm-hmm. seriously going to steal it. It's just like who killed wage increases in yeah. the <laughs> 1970s? <laughs> <laughs> the villain is out there somewhere. Today on the show we hunt him down. (laughs) I don't remember the last time I saw wage increases.
2: We'll be listening for that one.
1: I'm not even joking. I'm not even joking. I am not even joking because they're so successful, right?
2: Each of you should do a true crime. All
0: right. So Mia, I think you have a question. I know. I feel a bit serious after all that. My name is Mia Lindgren. I'm at Monash University. Um, Thank you so much for a great discussion and for a really good podcast, Louisa. It's really been missing, uh, having those kinds of resources of production. Uh, But just picking up on this difference between the US and Australia. So in terms of podcasting in the US, a lot of that has come from public journalism so you've got the journalists producing the podcast. A lot of the innovation in Australia has been really uh, done through independent producers. Um, and I guess the main question I have in my head, as a listener, does it matter if a podcast has been produced by a journalist or not?
1: I think it matters, but I but I came up as a journalist, so um, in the United States, I think it's 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 just quirky in that. Um, the the we don't have the sort of feature tradition that they have in europe or and and our public broadcasters didn't have a lot of rd radio so um which
0: we do yeah we have until yeah recently. and so
1: and so we just didn't we just didn't have that what we had was hundreds of public radio stations and npr and pri and all these different organizations that identified as journalists and um and all that meant, and they were covering the news of the day. And so it's just because those were the big popular outlets that were the ones that could also launch and pay for podcasting. And so journalists sort of moved over, and it was easier for us to, um, to sort of, oh, we can loosen up a bit uh, while still maintaining journalistic standards. Now, it's been, it's been interesting because we've had a lot of new people come in because there's podcast training, schools now and people are coming to it because they love, um, creative radio and that sort of thing. And they're coming in and it, it has been interesting sometimes to, to sort of feel the conflict over, Oh, this unspoken language that we have as journalists, like things that you wouldn't even say things you wouldn't even say out loud. Like, of course, you're going to get their first and last names and their contact info. And of course, you're not going to interview your roommate and not say it's your roommate. Like that's, so obvious that sometimes we don't say it out loud. And for people who don't come from that tradition, that, they're like, wait, well, I don't understand. You could interview someone across the street, but you can't interview your own roommate? And so you have to sort of say no, you have to be transparent, you have to get these sort of things. Um, and maybe that sometimes makes me seem like the, the grumpy old reporter man in the corner. When, this isn't the way we did it. But um, but it's something that that as as these newsrooms are mixing with creative journalists like we at least have to figure out the ground rules so we can communicate over it or just say that is the traditional style but we're no longer going to do that anymore
0: or do you don't talk about traditional styles but just explain why that fourth estate kind of role is so potent and important even in the storytelling space that is the podcast land because it is vital isn't it especially in this era of trump and fake news and you know, half-truths and total barnies, and, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's a pretty strange time we're living in. But on the other hand, it doesn't it depend on the podcast that you're presenting? I mean, a bunch of sports obsessives, you know. We, one of our most popular podcasts is a group of um, Melbourne women who are obsessed with AFL football, Australian rules football. And it's just, you know... But the can they take money?
1: To- can they take money from from the teams? Well,
0: they don't now because they're now on the ABC. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so that journalistic, you know, yeah. tradition counts. But you know, they're a group of women who are writers and artists, etc., various professionals who just are obsessed with football, and they make an awesome podcast.
1: I mean, one of the nice things is that the I think the fundamental rule of journalism ethics is transparency, which is. You can do just about anything you want on the radio if you just tell people you're doing it. In podcasting, you can say like, oh, listen, uh, here, are, here are the ethical qualms. Here, here is how I got this tape. Here's how it happened. Um, you know everything that I know, and we're not hiding anything, and here it is. So hopefully. Thanks a lot for this evening. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm a soon-to-be graduate of the master's program here as well. As audio storytellers and journalists... What, how do you reconcile the tension between having or between needing to reveal parts of yourself for the sake of the story and then other, part, other times when, as journalists, you need to take that step back and maintain a, a distance from your subject? So I find in podcasting, as someone who's producing one, that often negotiating this tension is something that's quite difficult. So I was interested in both of your thoughts on that. That's
0: a good question haven't inserted myself in enough stories clearly <laughs> I really haven't it's a more recent thing me trying to do that and I am wrestling with it because I'm also quite intense I'm very empathetic compassionate sort of interviewer that seems to be my thing but I'm also extremely private
1: yeah, yeah So yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's all about knowing why you're doing it mm. really um, because the fundamental part of the job is to talk To other people and to Mm. have their stories. So. Unless you're
0: doing a podcast like yours, which is by design coming partly from your own experience.
1: Yeah, but people are listening to this because they want things that are universal, you know, so, and the fact, the very fact that you're talking to other people means it's not just a personal essay. So, you know, you just have to figure out which parts only you can tell and which parts, um, are unique to the people you're, you're talking to. So when I use personal stuff, it's usually just to illustrate concepts or things that are universal.
0: Or take the piss out of yourself so that you can... Yeah, you it's, know.
1: <laughs> yeah it's not, it's, it's you know, I, I would do this for when I'm illustrating uh, the way savings bonds work. Um, you know, I pulled one out of our safety deposit box and had my young daughter talk about what she wanted to do with the money now versus later. That's personal in some ways, I have my daughter but it's not personal because it's not it's not about anything. It's about this concept of of savings and interest rates and that sort of thing. But whereas I would never, if I was going into if I was going into a situation where I was talking to um, someone who's poor about uh, various struggles that they had, I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, you know, like when I was at university, I you know, I I had to I had to go on food stamps or you know, like that would be insensitive and that would also just not help the story at all. And so it's just there are times where I would put myself in, but times where I'm like, no, no, this is... I find other people far more interesting than myself.
2: I think there is an immense power in using the personal, but using it quite sparingly. And so I was never keen on inserting myself in stories. And that, But one story that I did when I was in Beijing for NPR, that literally every single American I knew who lived in, in China had their parents ring them up and say, I just heard Louisa Lim on NPR talking about this, and you have to come home now, <laughs> because it was about pollution. Was it, a band? A band pollution. Pollution. And my editor had really um, kicked, dragged me, kicking and screaming, to do a personal story. So I opened with my kids, and they wanted to go out. My son had a football match, and I was checking my pollution monitor, and I was saying, you know... Um, um, we're not going outside today. And, you know, you could hear his disappointment. And I had a guy who came and looked at the pollution levels inside my house and he found the pollution inside my house was three times this safe level for, um, as wow. set by the WHO. And it was mm. one of the most effective stories that I've ever done. I didn't really want to do it. But Why not?
0: Now tell me about the kicking and screaming.
2: Well, again, it's that journalistic instinct to tell other people's stories, not your own. Um, but I have to say that was the story that I think more people really responded to. And partly it was my children's epic whining (laughs) and their disappointment, but also the fact that it brought it to a personal level. There were my kids and they were eating Cheerios and you could, you know, almost hear the listener go, oh, they eat Cheerios too in, in China. Wow. You know, they're like us. And that, that was part of the connection.
1: You're going to also need a very good editor. But in all, in all seriousness, like you need somebody who can look you in the eye and say, you know what, these other people's stories are more interesting than yours. Or yours is more interesting than the other people's story.
0: Or how can you tell your story differently? Yeah. Have you got a good editor?
1: Does That's anyone the scary really have a good bit. editor? <laughs>
0: That's the scary bit. It's that peer-to-peer, you always need someone to listen to your material. Always.
1: And especially in this, in this particular case where you're making decisions about your own story and other people's stories, that you share something similar. So, Because there may be things you can't see or hear that an editor can hear in a moment.
0: Uncomfortable truths. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one, one last question.
3: Uh, yeah, my, um, my question pertains more to the, I suppose, format and the mechanics of a
1: podcast. I've done quite a bit of broadcasting and... Um, journalism and radio making but never actually a podcast and one of the things that sort of confused me a little about them is to you know how regular should they be like should it be once a week maybe a couple of times a week can you do sort of um, intermittent
3: podcasts that sort of spring up at different intervals like one-off sort of uh, audio pieces okay or will they just disappear into the ether and never to be listened
1: to do you need that sort of Regularity in order to build an audience, does it need to be a particular theme? That's sort of something that's always confused me.
0: Biggest challenge for the podcast community right now, especially those outside of major broadcasters like NPR and ABC, is finding an audience Mm. because it's such a crowded and fractured marketplace. So, how do you get ears onto your podcast? And if it's too infrequent, you won't find an audience. If it's too niche and you haven't put the work into telling all those who are interested in that niche about your podcast, it won't find an audience.
1: Yeah, we're starting to move away from this seasonal model. For a while there, you would find, the, you know, a 10-part series every two years someone would put out, and they would be fantastic. But that required a certain level of novelty to it, and and, and very few each year would be the podcast everyone was talking about. And that's fine, but... Um, we just found that it was harder and harder to um, to get an audience if if it wasn't regular, you know. And so, and it was harder to get underwriting and, and 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 advertising for it. So, as we look at our our growth at Planet Money, being regular, we're twice a week, has been such a benefit for us because you'll go along, and then all of a sudden you'll do something on bikers, you know, and and it brings in a bunch of people you can see it online coming in to listen just because they're interested in biking and a few of them stay and the next week it's on taxi cabs and the week after that it's on fondue and you're bringing in various little bits of audience and you keep a little bit of that audience each time and that causes you to grow when when i've looked at the numbers for some of our limited series that go six seven eight episodes Mm -hmm. you could see it just starting to grow and then just drop off a cliff you know even if it's evergreen material you could listen to any time the attention span is very short.
0: Who came in for the fondue afresh? <laughs> the fondue... The cheese board. The,
1: the Swiss... It's a great story. The Swiss... Uh, our Swiss listenership went way up. I don't know, it's just... You know, the, the funny thing is, is, is we're trying different styles and different topics uh, within the rough rubric of economics. And so, you know, you'll do a funny episode and people... Uh, think, oh, I love this. Like you know, Planet Money's funny and then we'll do a more serious episode. And people are like, oh I love that and, you know, hopefully you're mixing it up enough that they're always hoping that the next one is the kind they like.
0: Mm. It's really hard to get an audience. I mean I Super I, tough. I would have thought that you know, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I hosted All in the Mind for ten years. It it was a it got massive stats for the ABC and it still does. And it's really hard to connect with a new audience. I mean, Life Matters was one of its top the top podcasts too. Now I've landed with this new show. And it is hard. It was seasonal last year. It was very hard to get an audience. We didn't have a lot of marketing push. I just sort of assumed that people would find me, you know, because I know I had such a dedicated kind of community of listeners for all in the mind. They don't. They won't. So it's like I'm sort of swimming in the big pool again. And it's a very interesting place to be. I'm actually quite enjoying the the challenge and it's also extremely humbling that you're only as good as your last program in a way and you can't assume that a history of great podcasts is going to get you a new audience necessarily. So that's a really interesting, sobering story.
1: And that's interesting because when you're part of the radio stream, yes, uh, programs have ratings to them, but they didn't vary very much at NPR. And individual stories, you couldn't tell how many people listened to the story. And it is... It is a harsh truth to see the number of downloads for each and every episode. And we actually now have minute-by-minute minute listening stats for podcasts. So You can see listeners go away when you start to do math or something like that or or when the topic changes. And you can see them dip during the ads as they skip the ads. And so it's... Do you it find that humbling. creativity
0: killer, potentially? Or do you rise to the challenge
1: of, of trying the, of to... having this much data?
0: Yeah, that much data. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing, isn't oh, it? Oh, no, no, like, no. Do no. you end up I, I crafting... it. Yeah, good.
1: I love it. And it's 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 exactly what, what we need. And you don't... You just know enough to say, like, oh, well, we had 10,000 more downloads on this episode on cats. We should do more cat episodes. But does like, that mean you're not you going to do, do that. maths? Not going to do gonna, what?
0: You're not going to do more maths?
1: Oh, math, uh, as we say. Math. Yeah, In math. the singular, yes. Math. No, because like you it's just one anecdotal. It's a fickle, yeah. That's
0: very fickle editor to have those sorts of stats. Yeah, you just don't and make you don't public, make
1: big changes based on yeah, one show. Yeah, because there's I'm a public
0: of, broadcasting mentality as well which has some merit I think and that is great ideas deserve to be given an airing and just because a fickle audience is too caught up with what the Kardashians or Trump are doing does that mean the story shouldn't be made? So I'm a little concerned that that kind of... I mean, yes, you've got to make programs that will be heard because what's the point of doing it? We're we're being paid to make programs for a wide public audience. But we also... Isn't there something to be said for exercising your audience, developing their listening muscles encouraging them to you know through good storytelling through good story way. Sure, I sure, want yeah. audiences to listen to math we should we should But math, you know
1: math. I I do I I I do hear uh, podcasts that feel like they are worthy podcasts that are trying to say this is important and you really need to listen to this and the nice thing about the data is that is that kind of thing shows that people just walk away like it's it's oh skip boom you're done and so, and that's a very interesting
0: time right now. Yeah, what does it mean for what stories don't get told? Well, Who's making the decision about what stories don't get reported on? I mean, because who, of who, a very particular yeah. Western listening lens right now, that's driving the podcast market.
1: But I don't think anyone. I mean, no one at NPR and no one I know in other podcasters are are using this to pick topics or the type of people they interview because they're smarter than that. Um, but I do think you can use this for storytelling styles. And you could say, for, for instance, when we got our early sets of data, we found, uh, this is very interesting, our data person said, um, oh, Robert, we're concerned about Planet Money because you don't start off saying who you are or introduce the program or have, or have theme music. We just, started, we just start telling the story. And then they looked at the data and they found that that was actually holding people more than our podcast that had the, dun, 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 hey, everybody, this is like, this is our <laughs> and like two or three minutes of of just chatting and like, let's get ready. What's the topic today kind of thing. That was losing more listeners than a straight, let's just get to business. Yeah. So it's great. That's, Data that, that's, that's really good to know. Yeah. yeah,
2: And that is the secret, isn't it? Serving your broccoli, but disguising it as something more appetizing, for your listener without being patronizing without being patronizing we are, have to stop because of time but thank you all so much for coming thank you to our amazing guests natasha mitchell and robert smith and thank you all for coming wow. that was fun, oh, yeah. that was fun. The Masterclass is produced and edited by Louisa Lim, Buffy Guerrilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded by Gavin Neighbour at the Hallwood Recording Studio. The original concept is by Anders Furs. The music is by Susie Wilkins. It's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening.